0: I think we're building our development plans around the idea that children are for youth sport. Youth sport is for children, not the other way around. That should be the starting point.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of 80% Mental. I am Dr. Pete Olusoga, and this is a podcast all about the psychology of sport and performance. This series, I've been exploring the psychology underpinning various aspects of performance, And it's a journey that's taken me from the Marathon de Saab to the Birmingham Royal Ballet, from the IMG Academy in Florida, all the way to Coronation Street. I haven't actually been to any of those places, but you know, you get the idea. Um, I've covered quite a bit, acting, singing, dancing, strength, coaching. And this series has really been an education on how and when psychology underpins so many different types of performance this episode is one that I've wanted to do for a long time, but I had to wait until my guest finishes PhD. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Back in back in series two, I did an episode on how to be a good sports parent. But today, we're going to explore the psychology of the kids. We're going to explore youth sport and how, when, and why we can draw on psychology to help our understanding and to guide our practice. And I've got the the perfect guest joining me today, uh, fresh off finishing his PhD. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Mark O'Sullivan. Mark, welcome to Eighty Percent Mental.
0: Thank you, thank you very, very much. Uh, it's it's indeed an honor. Um, I've been listening to the podcast in between finishing my PhD, so I've <laughs> it's a, it's an honor. It's a fascinating, and I've been following a lot of your fascinating uh, tweets as well, which I think uh, are the, I, I I really appreciate. Indeed, the the, 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 the less said about this, that, the better. <laughs> <laughs> I like them. I like them a lot. I I think it's good that that there's. Uh, Uh, that you show other sides and you know even though they're political there's something I stand firmly with you on.
1: No I appreciate that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just by by way of introduction because I I sort of introduce all of my guests uh, uh, Mark has just finished his PhD from Sheffield Hallam under the guidance of Professor Keith Davids and Dr James Rumbold. Shout out James Rumbold my old old office mate. Uh, Mark is also uh, a UEFA a licensed coach and has worked internationally as a coach and a coach educator. A uh, key theme from Mark's research is around athlete development frameworks and how they should evolve in interaction with the socio cultural context in which people are embedded. In other words, there's no copy and paste template. And I hope we'll, we'll get into some of that yeah. maybe during our conversation. Uh, Mark's originally from Cork City, Ireland, um, but has been in Sweden since 1994 and is a father of three who now spends his time between Stockholm and Oslo. And I have to mention as well, in a previous life, Mark was an international DJ, artist, music producer, and label owner. And we'll get into some of that a bit later as well. Um, But Mark, it's it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I can't wait to get into uh, uh, some conversations with you.
0: Okay, let's do it.
1: So I I guess, you know, my first question to kind of open us up is, you you know, you've been a, a coach and a coach educator like we said, for, for a number of years now. And I just wonder, you know, what's your, what's your kind of mission as a coach, as a coach, educator, as a, as a psych working in this field, you know, you've been at it a long time. What, what would you say your your sort of mission is in coaching?
0: That's uh <laughs> wow. Um,
1: nice easy one to start with. <laughs>
0: nice easy one to start with. I, I, I I it's it's a hard one to say because like okay I've be, I've worked as an artist and a musician I've released records as well and and did I have a mission then no it's just to be as creative as possible and express myself as much as possible um within that format um I guess within coaching it's also for me it's a form of of, exp- of expression, of, of myself, of being creative, etc. But I think that within, um, uh, when, I, when I started getting into coaching, which was totally by accident, because um, even though I played sport, lots of sports, and I played uh, one or two sports at a pretty decent level in Ireland, uh, I, I I've, was actually working in music and I started a football club in Sweden with some friends, uh, just a lot of expats, Irish, English, we had Dutch, Brazilians, Peruvians, Germans, Asians, everyone. So it was a really good, it, kind of an expat community and we had loads of Swedes involved. There. So it was a really great multicultural club. And and when I was playing, there was a Dutch guy who was coaching um, a bunch of 15 and 16 year olds. And I guess this was 2003 or something, 2004. And... He said to me, can I help out with coaching? And I I thought, yeah, yeah, sure. Now, you know, I didn't have a mission then, of course, because I hadn't even thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> and three weeks later, he kind of said, okay, he, he couldn't coach anymore. So I ended up going from to assistant coach to being the head coach. So I said, okay, I need to figure out what this is all about. What's going on here? And I was really enjoying it. I enjoyed being around uh, the young players and the kids, uh, you know. And, um. Funnily enough, being a DJ was a kind of a cool thing, which was a cool way into the group for them, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I started going on coach education courses. And I would say the mission, if I am on a mission, it's something that unfolded over time due to my experience in coaching hmm. and coach education. So I started going, OK, I need to figure out, oh, I'll go on a course and then I'll do another coach, you know, uh, the, the FA courses here in Sweden. And I started being a bit frustrated because I had some ideas and thoughts about um, coaching and I guess I I hate using the word teaching, coaching, but, you know, helping young players learn how to play sport uh, like football. I had some ideas about it. These probably came from my father when I was younger who was also an artist and he was a welder by trade, but it was an artist and really into sport. And I can remember like going to see the Irish under 15 team play or the 16 team play a Dutch team. I was only 10 or 11. My father explaining to me that, Oh, look at the Irish lads. They're way bigger than all the Dutch guys. But look, I guarantee you Mark, the Dutch guys have just wiped them off the pitch, Mm -hmm. you know? And it was like, and so he was explaining to me that this is just physical maturity. You're looking at here. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, this is a man, I was only looking back at now, God, this was like the the late 70s, probably, or early 80s, and he was explaining this to me, you know. And I don't think this thought entered anyone in, in sport in <laughs> Ireland at that stage. So we had these huge, guys I always remember this this Irish player going in to do a slide tackle on a Dutch guy at 900 miles an hour, and the Dutch guy just dropped the shoulder and moved <laughs> half a yard, and the, the Irish guy went straight into the advertising pole uh, <laughs> barriers. So, I was like, okay, so, you know, looking at the kids in front of me and seeing they're 15, 16, some look like they're 18, others look like they're 13, and okay, how can I work with this? And I wasn't really getting much um, answers in coach education at the start, mm-hmm. because I felt it was all very predetermined, and it looked, it was very technique-orientated, one-size-fits-all, this is the right way to do things. Uh so I started, okay, I guess maybe I should read some research. And I, I, I still, I think what happened, yeah, what happened was I was down in Spain visiting Espanol and I was asking so many questions, I must have really irritated the coach that he said, <laughs> I'll be back in half an hour, just stay there, don't move. And he comes back, honestly, with a pile of papers, you should read these. I went in this, there was stuff like Keith, some of Keith David's work, Ian Renshaw's work, uh, Lynn Kidman, uh, lots of stuff like that, Game Sense, kind of inter- early part of the constrained stuff. And I was like, okay. So me and a dictionary sat down and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of went through this and yeah of course the language is a barrier to start but the more I read and the more I got into it the more I found a confidence in how I could articulate my my ideas and mm-hmm. probably some of the seeds that were implanted in me from my father unknowingly as a, a very young teenager and yeah, so I guess the mission started evolving through that, that my own frustrations in coach education, my own inability to articulate myself. So, the, so how can I articulate myself better? How can I maybe look at the research into human learning movement? And how can I use this to, to uh, educate coaches and educate players? So that's kind of where it starts. So the mission is still, I think the mission is still unfolding. It's, so it's it's not something that I've predefined it's still unfolding in front of me. So that's how progress. I got into coaching
1: yeah. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned kind of your ideas there and and how they were maybe at odds with some of the coach education stuff um you know what what were some of your ideas and and how have they maybe evolved or are still evolving, I guess over oh, the last, maybe.
0: continue like so when I played Gaelic football, which is one of our national sports remember at seventeen and eighteen, I had a great coach, and he said something to me he said, Oh mark, you know you're really I used to play what's called the half forward line, which is kind of between the midfield and this the full forward line, and he said to me, you know when when you're when you're coming taking a ball in the area because you can catch the ball in Gaelic football, try and see." if you can, as you're landing, try and, try and check around, and see what's happening. That's all he said, just check around, and see what's happening. So we were doing these practice games, and a lot of the sessions he was doing would be very much small-sided games, even in Gaelic football, or bigger games. And he was years ahead of his time. I, of course, I didn't know this at the time. Hmm. So I was practicing. So I started practicing, you know, okay, I need, what's he on about what do i do what do you mean i just take the ball down and turn you know no but then i was like okay there's a guy on my right i'm gonna i'm gonna fake the right as i land and go left you know things like this were starting to evolve so implicitly take learning to take in information Mm. at vital moments in a game and i was like okay this is interesting and what is this and what is that so when i went to coach education i found it very reductionist and very okay this is how you teach somebody to pass a ball. This is how you teach somebody to dribble. And, you know, there were very, very, um, even in the Swedish word was lära ut, to learn out. This is how you learn out to a child. Hmm. So as opposed to my Gaelic football coach, who was he was facilitating some ideas. He was telling me what I could be doing, not how, what I could be doing. And he was, wants me instead of lära ut, he wanted me to learn in, if that makes any sense sense, you know. Yeah, sure. So the Swedish coach education and the Irish and the English at that time was very based on a very reductionist way, cause effect. If you do this, this will be the right way to do it. You have to have your angle, your foot planted like this. You have to have this, this, you know, and that's what it was. And then even the exercises you had for passing were all predetermined. And mm. it was very, um I found it very overstructured. And I was trying to figure, is this really the game? And you know, and so that's where my i start that they were that it was that part of coach education that I found very tough at first, and then when I went to the research, I was going i was able to question it at a pretty okay level, so it's somewhere in there that this um I'm very fortunate that this kind of absolute curiosity just started exploding which ended up by some massive series of coincidence, me doing a PhD. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, it was kind of in there. And it's, as I said, it's still unfolding. It's, it's my, my whatever mission, how I want to work it's still unfolding. It's still, it's still happening. And that's, what's really, that's, what's really cool about it, actually. Mm.
1: So this is kind of, you know, in, 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 rather than the cookie cutter, copy and paste, yeah. this is how you do this drill, this is how you do this. Yeah. It's very much kind of defining almost a sandbox and yes. saying, go play, go explore. You yeah. know, sort of learning by trial and error, intuition. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, like the way that coach explained to me, he said what I should do. You know, as you go up and get the ball, as you come coming landing, can, how can you take in information to, you know, to 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 maybe have the best outcome for that moment. Just a simple thing like that, go and exp- allowing me to explore it and allowing me to test it and see what happens. And just that alone was a big moment for me. And the other major moment for me actually was when I was doing my UEFA B in Sweden. Now, to, to the defense of the Swedish FA, they've changed all this in 2015. Mm. They've really made big efforts to change the coach education. Which they should be really credited for. Um, so I'm doing my UEFA B and I think this is about two thousand and nine or ten. And I'm I'm the we, we have a goalkeeping module. And I think it's one of the head goalkeeping coaches for the Swedish FA, I think he worked with the national team, came out to us and he said, Okay, we're gonna to work today with goalkeepers distribution kicking from the hand, you know? Okay. And he points at me for some reason. Out of like thirty people, because have you played in goal? And I went never. <laughs> and he's like, okay, so He says, okay, good. You're in goal. You're the you're the guinea pig. So I'm fine, and I'm there in the hole, ball in hand. And then he goes, all right. Can you kick from your hand? Yeah, sure. Bam. Do it again. Just do it again. Bam. Then I start doing half volleys, drop kicks. Then I switch to the left first and start doing all that. <laughs> and he's looking at me, going, Have you ever played in goal? No, never. And this goes on. He goes, "Ah, oh, come on. You must have. And I said, no, no, but I have played Gaelic football. And he was mm-hmm. like, what? What's that? So he, he looked up what it was. He goes, okay, wow. He's like, but who taught you how to do this? And I, went, and I actually did not understand the question. Who <laughs> taught you this? I said, what are you on about? What do you mean who taught me this? Nobody. It's <laughs> like... I've been playing this since I'm eight years of age. And, you know, if you can't do this, you're probably going to get killed <laughs> in the game. It's like, it's a pretty physical game. And to be honest with you, I'm probably far better at kicking a ball from hands when somebody's trying to take it off me, you know? And he was like, he was completely shocked, really fascinated by this. And I said, nobody, you know, and there's, there's probably 250,000 11-year-olds in Ireland that can do this way better than me, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that was another moment that I went, boom, Okay, there's something here. There's something more. And only reflecting on it as I started my studies, I started thinking about, hang on, there's also sociocultural context in learning certain skills. Yeah. You know, the context of Gaelic football and the games we have played and the coaches have afforded me certain opportunities to evolve these skills So, without actually being told how to do it. Because he said the technique I had was remarkable. You know, he said, yeah, yeah. and I said, yeah, but it's mine. It's not perfect. No, it's not the perfect one we'd look for. But And that's why I said, well, there isn't one.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to say, you know, we, we've talked about this this idea of this one size fits all approach and how kind of perhaps reductive that is. But in, in your PhD, you talk not only about the context that you're operating in, you know, you just mentioned that the sociocultural forces, but also mm. the historical sociocultural yeah. cultural forces that perhaps impact upon the current coaching context and you know for any kind of coaches that are out there listening or or even any psychs who are working with coaches can you can you talk to me a little bit about how and why that's such an important piece of the puzzle to consider this historical sociocultural context I I don't know if you have any maybe like examples
0: yeah Yeah, well the the thing is that you know basically if 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 we could just teach People layer out, again, learn out, skills to people. You know, you've worked in basketball. Oh, they're the best, the NBA. Now let's just take what they do there and we'll just dump it into Wrexham in the UK. And we're definitely going to have the greatest in the world then. It's not going to work that way. (laughs) You know, it doesn't work that way. Because there's a specific sociocultural context in basketball from the USA, you know, that is very specific to how they learn to play, you know. Yeah. It could be everything from a club to pick up games to whatever, you know, having having to be growing up in an area where there's just loads of basketball courts and people, you know, challenging each other and playing each other. So in Ireland, we have Gaelic football and hurling and we have rugby and we've other sports. So I, I I did a debate recently on Irish radio and a debate article I wrote about where is that we really need to get back to this in Ireland that, you know, we've such a unique cultural context for learning skills. That even if you play these other sports as a child, they can probably offer unique movement skills for children in football. So the the issue is that if if we could just copy and paste from another culture, a skill, like we'd all be probably going, okay, who's the hype country now? Whatever whatever it is, you know, uh Belgium. Yeah, yes, just do what the Belgians do, hmm. you know. But that's a completely different cultural context. They have the Walloon and the Flemish, you know, people. And now they're the second generation immigrants playing from that don't care about Walloon or Flemish divide. So there's a whole different context. There's Brazil, uh, the 50s, this 1958 team, the 62, 60, 70 team, and the 82 team. Very much what they call now football functional, football functional football. Mm-hmm. A very specific way of playing that aligns with their... So with with their social, cultural, historical context, and they actually have a name for it. They call it jinga to play with jinga, to play with sway, mm-hmm. and that's of course, goes back to probably the capoeira and the samba, yeah. and of course the history of the and you can even the history of the slaves being brought from Mangola there, and it's all in there. And the, as they integrate, you have the mulatto population there that that um uh, that come out from that. And they're looked down upon, you know, and it's and you have this thing, um, I forget the word, it's it's trickster, which is another character. They call him the trickster. But this is what they were doing on the pitch. They were playing out all of these parts, the trickster, the playing with Jinga. And also the the how they played was completely different. And how they moved. So if you look at like Brazil team from eighty-two, how they play and move is nowhere near how an English team would walk on the pitch or run on the pitch. Yeah. So that's an example. And the other a simple example I give would be Pavel Datsyuk. I did a paper on him. Pavel the Magic Man Datsyuk, an ice hockey player, uh, H- ice hockey hall of famer, won numerous Stanley Cups with Detroit Red Wings, grew up in the old Soviet Union. So I did a long interview to him about it, myself and uh, my uh, co-writer Vlad. We did an interview with, Pavel about his childhood, then also dug deep into the sociocultural context of, of his childhood, including the historical sporting context. And an interesting thing he said was that as a child, that if you broke a stick, if he broke a stick, he could be waiting at least, you know, one month to get a new one. So he decided that, well, I want to play hockey every day. So he learned, he said, I learned to play protecting the stick in the puck. So he started evolving this very unorthodox way. Now, probably in a traditional coaching, and he said, I never did slap shots. And to this day, I still can't do a slap shot, he said. Yeah. So he said, he, he said like, if you probably in traditional coaching, you have to learn a slap shot, you know? But for him, he just didn't do it because it would put a stick at risk. So arguably, you could say, because of under socioeconomic... Uh, factors, constraints that he evolved a way of playing that to respond to this, so he could keep continuously playing, so and keep his stick safe. So he has this very unusual style. So when he turns up at the NA, um the NHL, it's like people saying, "What's like? What are these skills? What's he doing?" So they call him the Magic Man. Hmm. So there's another example of how the social cultural context influence skills. But the the thing is that is um. And this is the moment in my UEFA B, as I said, that I've kind of, it just all went off, I guess, that how come I can do this? And, you know, all the other people who are are goalkeeping coaches and want it, they have to teach it, they have to learn it out. They think they have to learn it out to the coaches. So it really just got me. Got me going, got me thinking. There's, of course, there's loads of examples of this. You probably have New Zealand rugby. I mean, we can't copy-paste that. Yeah. South Africa won the World Champion, the World Cup this year. I don't think we can copy-paste that into Scotland or something, just no. exactly what they do.
1: And yet, And yet you still see examples of this, even in kind of elite sport, top-level sport, where yeah. people still try and do this. They still try oh. and kind of, okay, well, what's the latest thing that seems to be working in such and such a context? Oh, well, let's do that. So you, yeah. you still see, and I wonder why that is. Is that just kind of because it's easy to try that or
0: <laughs> because
1: when, you know, when you talk about that, the, 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 the context, you know, the, the examples that you've given, like beyond anything else, it's just fascinating. Yeah. When, once you start to peel back the layers, it's just, yeah. it's genuinely interesting. And I, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to dive into that.
0: I I have a kind of an idea that I'm working, thinking about, about this, why there's so much copy paste. And I think this is down to the emergence of the dominance of administration. Go on. It's it's easier to box tick, copy paste templates mm. than to actually go, you know what? We need to find out, we need to dig where we're, stand, we're standing. We need to figure out why we do what we do. Why do we think this way? Why do we act this way? Mm. You know, why do we play this way? That's far too complex, (laughs) you know. (laughs) You can't measure that either. But, hey, you know, we have a fantastic template here that we're just going to take in from a successful country. Country X did it, they got Y, so let's do what Country X did, and, of course, we'll get Y as well. But I think it's probably, my feeling, is due to the dominance of administration. It's not just that, but that has helped shape it. So, particularly, I think that, some When I, I, I work in the Norwegian School of Sports Science, I'm an associate professor there, and I speak with some of my kids and they're asking about careers in coaching. And now Norway's not as bad, but I said, you know, in some countries, you're better off getting a career in administration in sport than coaching because you're probably going to get paid better. And there's probably a few more future there because it's ending up now with all these certification models that, you have to, ad, like, administration has now been attached to the money that's been distributed, mm. and this is why I think we've loads of copy and paste things because it's much easier to administrate. That's m- what I'm thinking at the moment about it. What's your thoughts? Anything in that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I would, I would, I would totally agree. I think it's you know, it kind of brings me on to the next next part of what we're going to talk about, which is the, the sort of purpose of. Of youth sport, but yeah, I, I think it's 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 easier to do the easy thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I don't know whether it's naivety, this idea of just well, let's take the dominant thing that works and let's try and apply that without a real understanding of those socio cultural factors and the context. Yeah. And I don't know if it's so, just a naivety or a lack of understanding.
0: So I, I get I have a paper just come out in the Journal of Sports Science there uh, last week, and I show examples of how the Australian football who had this golden, you could call them golden generation, mm. but that evolved through Croatian and Serbian immigrants playing in their local communities. Yeah. And they stayed in their local communities playing with one club while Australian kids were jumping from club to club to be more successful in in youth. But this group were very much central to a quite a successful Australian football team in the early 2000s. And a lot of them, a couple of them played in the premier league and, Etc. And and kind of put Australia back on the world map of soccer or football, but and but then the football association took in a Dutch model. And yeah. uh, and it's I, I found some newspaper articles where they're saying that this was a complete disaster because it does not resonate with who we are or our culture. So yeah. this is really cool that they've they've seen this. And then there was um, there was Lithuania. I was over in Lithuania. And uh, they were adopting a Belgian model. They went as far as actually using Anderlecht's player development plan to run their whole, the whole country's player development plan. Hmm. And I've, I think that's dead now and gone. Yeah. But, like, come on, Lithuania and Belgium? You know? It's, so the issue now is that I've seen it gone so far, and this is where it touches the administration, that this copy and paste has gone so far that we're heading towards what I would call a homogenization and globalization of coach education. Hmm. We're back to a one-size-fits-all coach education. So when somebody like UEFA says, we want to standardize coach education, I get very nervous. So I'm seeing now what's evolving is what I call a methodological imperialism. And this was very evident in the last World Cup. And there's a great guy called Juan Mo Lilo, who is the assistant coach to Pep at Man City, but he's also been Pep Guardiola's mentor many years ago. And he did this analysis of the World Cup, and he said that this is a disaster. All the teams, except for Argentina, actually, are playing the exact same way. And he said, at halftime, Brazil and Cameroon could change shirts, and the only reason why I'd know, like, who is who, is by which players or which players, or who is who, is by their hair colour or tattoos because they just basically were playing the exact same type of football. And what he said is interesting is this called positional play. He said he said if there's one thing I could change, it would be me 25 years ago because I brought a lot of these ideas to the table and I've seen what's happening now and this is not good. It's all about coaching. The coach is the center of everything. But Argentina did the opposite. They had this thing, they spoke about Messi, says in an interview, we need to go after the first game, we need to go back to La Nuestra, our way. Um, yeah. uh, they uh, That's basically what they did. Argentina were really just an outlier in this World Cup. Mm. I think a, a
1: really interesting point there as well is to, something to consider is this idea that even within, you know, you talk about the historical context and even within a particular culture, um, that socio cultural context changes so you know yeah. I always think about the example of the England football team we, we, we can't go to a world cup without somebody mentioning the war no yeah exactly you know, and and we so they I know that they did a lot of work on identity before the I think it was 2018 in the build-up to 2018 world cup you know because they, there's still that imagery around you know the blitz spirit and Terry Butcher with blood pouring out of his head yeah. And you know There's still this sort of imagery and culture around English football, but it doesn't actually mean anything to a group of players who were born in the late 1990s. No,
0: and and, you know, I even remember the debate, should Glenn, I mean, one of my, I was a Man United fan as a kid, but my favorite player was Glenn Hoddle. He was an artist on the pitch, Hmm. but he was a luxury player. Yeah. You know, he didn't, he didn't put in a shift, apparently, you know. But this yeah, guy yeah. was, you know, as is a great thing. It's like England are coming off the pitch after losing 2-0 to Holland. And Rude Hullet says, well, what do you expect when you've got Glenn, Glenn Hoddle on the bench? If he was Dutch, he would be God. And, but of course, he didn't, you know, he yeah, didn't yeah. show the um, the aggressiveness or the temperament of the blitz. <laughs> if yeah. You you know what yeah, you were yeah, saying yeah, there. Yeah. He didn't show the, you know. Yeah, and that's, it, you
1: know, so it's I think it's all very well and good having, you know, defining your way of playing and your style of, of coaching and style of playing based around that, that sort of cultural context, but also there needs to be an understanding that that in itself shifts and changes and yes. evolves as well. Um,
0: and, and this England team's a perfect example of it. Yeah. Even I like them. <laughs> <laughs> We're praising them on Irish radio. There's something has changed. <laughs> you know they are they're great they represent their country really well and gareth southgate represents the best in what i think english what english people what being english is hmm. in my opinion as an irishman like because i have english friends and you know he represents them really well i think
1: pra- praise for an england football team from an irishman i know the world's gone mad <laughs> This is the 80% Mental Podcast, and I'm here with Dr. Marco Sullivan. And honestly, it's been an absolutely uh, incredible conversation so far, putting to rights coach education, talking about the importance of the historical, socio-cultural context in you know, creating coaching culture, culture, creating um, perhaps ways of working and, uh, and methods. I want to switch up a little bit um, and I want to give you another really easy question. Um, in your opinion, What do you feel the the purpose of youth sport should be? You know, we we kind of want to come back to to sort of youth sport in particular. Like, what should the purpose of it be?
0: Um, Youth sport is for children, not the other way around. That's basically it. Children are not for youth sport. Youth sport is for children. And I think we're building our development plans, our player development, if you want to call them, whatever pathways. Around the idea that children are for youth sport, youth sport is for children, and that should be the starting point. And it's a very, very big new, uh, nuance and discussion. I think a lot of people have difficulty in. I mean, you know, my my eight year old here is um, speaking about Santa Claus, you know, coming giving him presents. Mm. In most countries, he's part of a talent ID system to go into an academy. You know so as when somebody usually says to me hey you know i'm just starting to coach 7 8 year olds what advice would you give me i said never ever ever forget that some of them probably believe in santa claus so yeah. i think it i still think that's really absurd that we have actually academies and elite teams for 8 year olds that probably believe in santa claus well so, i
1: remember i remember speaking to you years ago about this and yeah. um you know, I think the example you gave at the time was Manchester City. I think they had an elite oh, under, fives. under five
0: academy. Yeah, that was yeah, elite yeah. elite
1: under fives academy. I mean, what, what do we make of that? You know, because the, the concept of elite youth sport still gets thrown around all the time.
0: But like, yeah, of course it does. But then all you have to do then is say, oh, but look how successful Man City are.
1: Mm. I mean, Man City is def- only one example, you know. But, I, I know, the, but, but the stuff.
0: whole point is people extrapolate it out to look, but look how successful yeah. they are. Yeah, but that's nothing to do with these five-year-olds, you know? And anyway, like, we still base our systems. So most, I'm, I'm even over here, there's a debate. Uh, it's called the crisis in Swedish football. And my reply is actually, no, the debate is the crisis, not the football, because the mm. debate is at such a bad level, I think. So we all, we're only looking at survivors of systems. So a lot of these youth sports now is built around survivorship. Yeah. Who survived the system? Oh look! It's and it's easier for a, for a journalist to say, "Oh, he came into the academy at six, and now he's playing in our first team." And that's the clickbait story. Yeah. The other ones that just have completely meandering, complex um, developments with just a lot of luck and serendipity thrown into the middle of it and coincidences. That's not interesting, you know.
1: But yeah, I mean, I've, I've got some figures here. I think uh, of all the boys who enter an academy at the age of nine the number of people who quote unquote make it less than half of 1%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Children at football academies are more likely to get hit by a meteorite than to succeed as a professional athlete.
0: And and we go back to then we're only, and the systems are still, we're still building systems on that tiny, tiny, tiny. Talent is a graveyard of evidence. Nobody sees the dead bodies. Mm. So when we go back to, again, it's sport is for children, not the other way around. So, children are not to be used for sport and they're, they're part of an economic system now almost at this stage
1: no that that's exactly it you know and okay. i read a paper and I, I i talk about this paper all the time and i should really find out the name of the guy who wrote it because i forget it every time but it's it's a um, a sociologist and he talks about the idea of the athlete as a widget yeah just a, okay. a part in a machine yeah. that's entirely replaceable and is replaced over and over and over and over again. And coaches fall into this category as well, kind yeah, of. Yeah. Um, but it's a really interesting paper, and it kind of you know highlights some of those issues that we see in sport. The athlete is just a widget. They serve a function in this capitalist machine, essentially. Yeah. And it's not about sport being for kids. It's about kids being part of this, this almost production line. I'm going mm-hmm. to try and find that paper and, and, and put it in the show notes. But, but uh, don't
0: you think also that... This production line then gets fed by a load of myths like we've all had turning up at our academic doors like 10,000 hours. Of course, yeah. You know, these pop science myths. And yeah, that fits in nicely there. Let's just shove that in there. And then there's this um, windows of opportunity is golden age for learning between seven and 12. Oh, Mm. that that, that suits the uh, narrative. Let's dump that in there as well. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, I mean, another another kind of really easy question for you then. How how do we get from where we are now with this to where you feel that we should be for sport being for the kids? Like, how, how do we flip this around? You know, some of well, the work that you're doing in Sweden is kind of important in this.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, sport should be for kids, but I do think also we need to be, you know, that if a child turns up to play football or basketball in a club, they're there to play football and basketball. mm you know, if they don't want to be there, we shouldn't be forcing to be there. We do. have There are tendencies where parents push kids in and the kid doesn't want to be there. And that's, that's another thing. I think an important th- thing also is this idea of this polarization of specialization or sampling different sports. We shouldn't be forcing children to sample sports. We should make opportunities available for them mm-hmm. and make them economically viable as well. That's an important thing. But we shouldn't be forcing them to sample. And we should not be forcing them to specialise. And I think what really needs to happen is probably at a government level, there needs to be a demand, if there is government funding, that sports associations of different sports, will say basketball, whatever. So maybe in Sheffield, we'll say there's football, basketball, uh, are, and rugby. We'll, say, we'll just give those three sports. Imagine they're the... Mm. That as part of their funding, as part of agreement, they have to work together to allow affordable opportunities for children to take part in different sports, but also um, support in a way that, oh, you know, well, if you're not serious about football now at nine, then, you know, you, you and, and you're going off playing rugby once or twice a week or hmm. basketball, then you can't be with us. That needs to stop. I think a key to it is that we need to start, there needs to be demands if it's connected to funding is that you're working with children, these sporting associations should be there for children and should actually be communicating and collaborating because I think from this anyway, because some kids will say, no, I don't want to play rugby. I don't want to play basketball. I just want to play football. Great. Some kids might just want to play basketball. Great. But make it open to them. Give them the opportunity. And that's one of the things we did at AIK in the 8 to 12. If kids said other sports, that's fine. We don't... You know, the expectation is... We always have an expectation. You're at every training session. That's not a rule. That's just an expectation. Mm-hmm. Oh, you play other sports. That's no problem. Fine. How can we work this out? How can we work this out for you? And so it works. So you don't get stressed. And, you, you know... So we, tr- we tried to do this. And it is tough within a society that assumes that you have to practice every day with a coach to be the best. But over time, it worked. Our... I think over the six years we I was there, we increased the amount of children in the age group by four hundred, and we didn't do anything special. We actually took away the early selection model, which they used. selected eight and I was at thirteen, and we had more children coming. everyone thought we'd less and we'd lose children. In fact, the opposite happened, yeah, and we have a lot of children that are playing other sports and some children now that are playing in the academy I just looked at their the friend of mine's the head academy coach for the new group that have come in some of them are playing a couple of different sports some of them haven't but they were allowed to choose and they were never told you can't play with us if you're doing yeah. this set of sports so I think there has to be some sort of I'm wondering should this tie- be tied to government if government is funding this yeah then well there I mean- should be a demand set on okay we need to work together on this how do we do this yeah
1: well i mean i i I, as you were talking there, i was thinking back to my own childhood and you know when i was a kid when i was sort of seven eight nine ten years old i lived pretty near to a a leisure center um lived like literally just across the road but it was really cheap so it was government subsidized right so i could go Mm -hmm. and pay just a you know a few pence or whatever and you know, I I played tennis, I played basketball, I played yeah. football, I played I, I did judo, I did swimming, I played badminton, and every summer there were multi-sport camps. So I had access and opportunity to all of these different things, you know, and this mm. is like me as a, a poor kid growing up in, in Gateshead, right? And that leisure center that I used to go to is closed now. Mm. Because there's Wait. no funding. Um, but you know, having that that sort of opportunity to do lots and lots of different things. And eventually, I settled on playing basketball because I loved it, right? But I still had the opportunity to do that. And I think, you know, one thing that that does, and that there's lots wrong with the American system, but one thing that they do really well is that they produce athletes. Mm. So you can take somebody who plays basketball and they can go and play American football or baseball or whatever, mm. you know. Whereas over here, you know, you, you mentioned this idea of early specialization, and you've got kids who play football and nothing else from the age of five. And then when they get spat out at, yeah, eight or nine or ten or however old it is, they get to when they're told that they're not good enough. Well, they they don't know how to do anything else.
0: Yeah, and their whole world falls apart. Yeah, probably they don't know. And again, I know there's even issues being brought up about burnout as well. And as you've you yeah, touched on yeah. coach burnout, I don't know when you're podcasting, but if you have player burnout, uh, young kids out. and and again, like these, what we're looking at, like you might have. These are all symptoms of a bigger problem. And a yeah. bigger problem is probably how adults run sport. How adults run sport. It's it's often seen that children are for sport, not that sport is for children. Yeah. So yeah. and and I know we kind of discussed this before privately, but I'm and again I'm I'm wondering why are we just looking at symptoms and not yeah. dealing with the problem?
1: I was thinking about this and and you know I I have a similar it's a similar situation in higher education. So obviously, I work mm. in higher education, and and the way that I describe it is there are two opposing and competing forces at play here, right? So from the university perspective, <clears throat> it's money, pe- getting people through the door, uh, making as much money as possible, right? Because because capitalism. Mm. And then at my end, you've got a whole bunch of lecturers who are doing that job because they are educators, because they want to help kids learn how to think about the world and learn the subject and be passionate about the subject and be critical about the subject. Those two forces are at complete odds with each other. And, Mm. you know, there's only ever going to be one winner. And I see the same thing in sport and coaching. You know, it's this idea of the athlete as a widget in this capitalist system. Mm. You know, there are these forces that are about production, right? How can we get kids through, you know, um, find the next messy and sell them on for, however, you know, and then you've got these coaches who are passionate about coaching and want to see kids develop and have fun and enjoy themselves. So, mm. you know, I see it almost as this fundamental clash in ideologies mm. and I, I I don't see how that can be resolved without a complete change in, in the I, system. I, I so think, that's why yeah, they're treating symptoms complete. rather than the... the, the
0: yeah, the, exactly, stopping symptoms. And, of course, then I think the underpinning ideology there is probably based on um causality, very deterministic systems that mm. hey, you know, if we do this now at this age and this at this age and this at this age, we'll get this elite athlete. Yeah. You know, and it's so deterministic, the the whole systems, like as I've said on numerous podcasts before like the we still have ages and stages models. That's just ridiculous. Mm. You know, oh at 10 you should be able to do this with your left foot and then your right foot or whatever. There's there's elite athletes playing in World Cups can't do half that stuff, <laughs> you know. It's like, it's a, come on, you know. And it's like, and again, we have the the systems are chronological when we're biological complex adaptive systems. So there's there's a big there's so many of these issues, but I I do think we need to start. Okay, maybe it is trying to get those the major stakeholders the major federations the major organizations involved in youth sport the governing bodies how do we work together and how do we do this and how do we make it affordable because as we like for you that was affordable what you were doing as a child hmm. it was affordable it also meant that the people from different socio-economic backgrounds cultures whatever could come there
1: exactly yeah. so
0: some kid might you might be meeting some kid from a very wealthy background some uh, an asian kid an english working class kid you know different but it was there for them yeah it wasn't there just for it, it wasn't an integration project yeah, yeah. it was an inc- it was it was an inclusion project that was there for everyone
1: This is the 80% mental podcast. I'm here with Dr. Mark O'Sullivan and we are still going on about coaching and youth sport and trying to set the world to rights. Um, Mark, on these podcasts, I don't know if you've listened to any recent episodes, but I, I, I always want to feel like I get to know the guests a little bit a little bit more. Hmm. And obviously I know you already. Um, but I, I've got a little game that I like to play and I have four sets of questions here. Uh, in, in in four different envelopes, um, deep and I meaningful. I knew there was
0: something. I knew there was something. I knew. I know about this. And now you, I'm, just, yes. I, I, I'm just. I'm gonna, just going to say shit. <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, first of all, are you up for playing?
0: Yeah, I am up for playing. Oh, of course. I, I was like, off. Oh, I completely forgot about this. <laughs> Go on. <laughs>
1: All right, so we've got four different sets of questions, deep and meaningful, have you ever, either or or the last time. So I'm going to ask you to choose an envelope because I've got four different envelopes here. Uh, one, two, three, or four?
0: Three. Three. Three is the lucky number. So we've got... Isn't that Delosol? soul?
1: <laughs> magic number. Three is a magic, magic
0: number. Three is a magic number, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, okay, so we've got the last time. Oh God! Questions about the last time. I'll start you off nice and easy. <music> All right. Uh, when was the when was the last time you crossed a border?
0: Um, on Friday.
1: I was going to say that's a pretty easy question because you flip flop between Norway pretty
0: regularly
1: entirely non-interesting one to start with then um <laughs> yeah. when was the last time you threw a party
0: um i threw one. Oh god it's been it's been a while but it would have probably been a small birthday party that i dj'd at with some friends at my apartment where i set up the decks and we played records and had a few drinks.
1: You still still get that out every now. Still get the decks out yeah, every now and then. Yeah,
0: every now and then, I might even wander into some bar and restaurant that asks me to play. If sometimes I do that,
1: yeah. All right. So still an yeah. active active DJ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I, I collect. I still collect my vinyl. I have my deck set up there in the background. Yeah.
1: What's uh, what's your record collection standing at now? Have I have no
0: idea. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that when I uh, <laughs> my last proper gig, you could say was headlining the dance tent at the Roskilde Festival. And I was on stage wondering, did I book the washing room? (laughs) And I kind of figured that maybe this, that was 2006. And I don't know, as I started getting into coaching, I kind of just got rid of a lot of records, including all the ones I've released. So I've actually spent the last two years buying back records that I released (laughs) as an artist through through, uh, Discogs. Yeah, yeah. so um i used to have a few thousand but i don't think i have now
1: what's um I, I asked this question on the last podcast i did uh just it's kind of break from the format um but since we're on the topic what's an album that you can listen to with no skips like perfect album
0: um probably marvin gay what's going on yeah um i also like uh dj shadow introducing it's an incredible album. Miles Davis in a Silent Way have a great reggae compilation called uh, Randy's. It was a small record label and store in Jamaica. And it's a compilation of stuff they released and that's just mind-blowing. It's just stunning. The, the first Massive Attack album I think is pretty special as well.
1: Good shout. Good shout. Mm. Um, okay, back to the last time. When was the last time you borrowed a book?
0: Um, probably from my. Like, Colleague Christian at NIH a few months back. I never read it yet. <laughs> uh, so is that? Uh, I, I would think that would be the last time I borrowed a book. It. I,
1: I mean, I'll ask you what the book was, but if you haven't read it, then yeah. Um, when was the last time you told someone something you weren't supposed to tell them?
0: <laughs> um, actually. <laughs> Remember going back to my eight-year-old believes in Santa Claus? I didn't know he still believed in Santa Claus. Oh and I kind of passed the wrong comment at the wrong time, but managed to dig myself out of it. <laughs> so that would probably be the last time. And I think that was only last week.
1: <laughs> um Okay. Yeah. Uh wh- When was the last time you felt really happy?
0: I mean... I felt happy this morning waking up my kids and just like trying to wake them up. And, you know, I felt happy then really happy. I think that's the, yeah, I just, I feel happy when I'm with my kids, I think a lot, a lot of times. So, but, um, I'll tell you one, just uh, something that I really, and it was unusual. It was a, a, a mixture of sadness and happiness. It was, there was, um, I saw some of Shane McGowan's funeral broadcast from Ireland Mm. and the pose got up on stage with uh, Lisa O'Neill and Glenn Hanser, two Irish artists, and they did fairy tale in New York in the church. And then people got up and started dancing. Oh, wow. I felt so happy. Yeah. I I mean, it's, it was like a very sad occasion, but very joyous. And I felt Mm. it was another type of happiness that, God, this is great that I hope people see this. This is, you know, this is really Ireland, you yeah. know, and you had you had Johnny Depp carrying the the coffin and you had Jerry Adams as one of the speakers, the president of Ireland. You had Nick Cave playing it. And I just like, looked. I felt kind of happy. I don't, I know it's a funeral, but the joy of that moment of people up and dancing. Yeah.
1: I, no, I get that. I get
0: that. I kind of felt, I felt really happy, like almost tearful happy, you know? Yeah. That's another happiness, of course.
1: So uh, speak, speaking of that, then speaking of um, uh, of Ireland, when was the last time you visited your hometown?
0: That was just before the pandemic, but I'm going to go back. I think in March. Oh, okay. It's a while yeah, March, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I need to. I need to. Yeah, I've be, I've been living in not Cork for far too long.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Mark, thank you very much for playing the uh, game that I still haven't thought a name up. Uh, still haven't thought of a name for yet. Um, I appreciate finding out a little bit more about you.
0: Ah, you're more than welcome. That was fun. I survived. (laughs) Do I get a (laughs) t-shirt?
1: So this is the 80% Mental Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Mark O'Sullivan talking about the psychology of the kids, all things youth sport, youth coaching. If you've enjoyed what you've been listening to so far, uh, don't forget you can subscribe at 80percentmental.com or you can follow us on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80percentmental. Uh, leave us a comment, send us a tweet. Uh, I would love to know what you think uh, about what you've heard so far. Um, Mark, I've just got a couple of questions left if you've got if you've got time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, we've kind of talked about lots of the things that are being done maybe poorly, um, mm-hmm. some of the areas where we can maybe make some improvements in, in youth sport and youth coaching. Um, I want to ask you, what, what are the things that are happening in youth sport that are amazing? What's some of the really good stuff that's happening and, and what is it that's facilitating that?
0: Um, from my, my understanding now, and of course I'm not um, there, I don't have too much firsthand experience, is that... I, I can see what's really happening in Irish rugby at a youth, at young level about how they're really encouraging kids and they keep them within the system, you know, because the understanding that it's very much a physical sport that is based on physicality quite mm-hmm. heavily yeah. at the top level. So I'm, what I'm understanding from people that I've spoke with working there, um, I really thought what they're doing there at the youth level. I had a friend, an Irish friend who lives here who went to the Leinster rugby camp with his, brought his son there when he was 14. And he said, all the players came down and the top players to meet the kids and just hang out and chat with them, you know? Yeah. So I think there seems to be a lot of good stuff happening there. Um, I think they've kept it very, just keep people in the system, keep kids in the system. Um, I really... Admire um, my friend Debbie, who runs this club, Debbie Sayers-Robbins, um, Salisbury Rovers. She was so, like, couldn't understand the youth's football systems in, um, in, in England and how they works. So she started her own club. And it's basically run by the children. And they are very involved in all the decisions. They actually are involved in decisions. Hmm. Yeah. So it's phenomenal. And the club is growing and growing and growing and growing. And it's just, it's 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 almost like she facilitates the club while the children are the ones that determines, more or less determines its direction. And I, I think she's somebody you should get on. She's a human rights lawyer as well. Okay. So um, it's fantastic the work they're doing. And they do a lot of community stuff as well. You know, a lot yeah. of street football community stuff in certain areas. Just go and play somewhere in a yard and with loads of kids and from the area. It's really good work. It's well worth checking out Yeah. So, Rovers.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll um, put a link if they've got a website or anything. But uh, yeah, they I mean, do. It I, sounds I'll like,
0: send it on to you. And it's really, really good. And she's really pushing the United Nations Convention of Children's Rights in yeah. sport. Fascinating what they're doing. I think it's it's wonderful. So it really is um, kind of sport
1: for the kids. You know, like you were saying earlier.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think I just think there's. A lot of my experience now early experience in norway it's pretty impressive that they're i mean this is a country of five million people and um they've developed a couple of good you know a couple of good footballers they have and but like if you look at their winter sports and you know i one of my one of my um students last year was is involved in the i think it's the olympic beach volleyball coaching and things and, and the actual opportunities that, uh, that and the interest they have for children, because I know they don't have academies until thirteen, in football, um, in general. Of course, there are issues, but what I'm really impressed by is that I have never been in a country where I've met coaches, admin, coaches, administrators, um, technical directors, and academy directors with ac- so many of them with academic backgrounds. It's really like, you know, you, I go and I meet somebody at the club and they have a master's, hmm. you know, or a coach. I've got my bachelor and my UFA. You know, and, and that's really interesting. I think it's it's, it's fascinating. And this is an across a lot of sports I'm finding. That's my initial thing. So I think what they're doing is interesting there. Um, mm, I would, you can talk I, I about something. your own
1: work as well, because I know that you, you're doing some really good work as well here.
0: Yeah, I've been doing. We've been doing some work at Aik in 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 Stockholm. Um, of course, I don't work there now because of, of the new job. But mm-hmm. that's continuing that eight to twelve space because Stockholm is very. You know, it's there are a few big academy clubs there, and it's very um, the race to the bottom is pretty frantic there. You notice, <laughs> and we have the. Instagram one-on-one coaches that are there everywhere as well. You know, yeah, the Instagram yeah, one-on-one, yeah. you pay your 100 euro and we, I I can get your kid to dribble in and out cones and teach him how to kick a ball properly and all this stuff. And I was, I was going to ask you about that, That's pretty rampant. And I was going to ask
1: you about that because you see a lot of that in basketball as well. Yeah. Everybody's got a, a one-to-one skills trainer and they're always posting videos of themselves <laughs> online, on Instagram and what have you. And yeah. it's kind of, it's huge. It's a yeah. huge thing right now.
0: Yeah, and like that's huge here in Stockholm as well. And we have now parents with Instagram accounts for their gifted (laughs) 10-year-old, you know, and it's kind of like, so we've been really damp turning the volume down on that. Now, the idea here is that in many ways we can't stop this behavior, but maybe we should try and turn the volume down a bit because these parents are investing that a parent invest time in their children is something we should welcome, but there's certain aspects of it. We need to turn the volume down on. We can't stop them doing stuff. So our work there and we, 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 our kids ate like the eight, nine and 10 year olds used and used train twice a week. And we would offer them an extra training that they could decide if they wanted to turn up or not. And, we used to have over 70 kids from each age group at each extra training. So there'd be 120 or 110 kids in an age group, each age group. we have about 70 turn up for extra training. But then that meant they would mix with other groups. So we'd have about, say, each age group, about six or seven groups that are teams that are pretty random. Mm-hmm. And then they'd meet and we'd mix them as much as possible. And we would just do some. I guess, coaching a lot of games, a lot of 1v1s, 2v2s. Tried to get them, say to some eight-year-olds, okay, guys, uh, do you know what you can do next week? Find out something you see on YouTube, some cool thing a player is doing, show it to me. All right, let's do this. You know, and, and they might say, all right, we're going to play a 3v3 here. Let's see if you can integrate that in there. You know, Just a bit of fun, getting yeah, have yeah. a fun for the kids. and. <clears throat> and uh, very much we tried to design sessions where the kids would drive drive it meaning that if it was a particular design that the kids would drive how the session started how who starts with the ball and when as opposed to me going okay now you now you yeah. you know it was more them would decide it so we tried to design sessions run and that's been very popular i mean we've had about some of somebody like last year's my last year there i remember my last session i did there at aak we had 85 of 120 kids at extra training mm. on a cold autumn day and what's really good is they drive it you know we're only seven coaches with them and they, they drive it and i think there's a lot to be said for that designing sessions that the kids drive the session you know, they decide when we start the drill or whatever you want to call it, the design. Yeah. They decide. It's their movement decides it. As opposed to a coach blowing a whistle. And we actually we ban whistles. I ban whistles from eight to twelve. There's no whistles. Nobody was allowed to use a whistle at all. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that was the only that was the only uh <laughs> explicit thing I did. Yeah. No whistles. They're control mechanisms.
1: Final final question then, really. And I wonder in all of this. What is the role of the psychologist? A lot of psychologists find themselves kind of working in youth sport. Um, like what's the role of the psychologist here or the psychologist working alongside the coach uh, or you know anybody else that maybe needs to be involved in in, in kind of developing this sort of structure, this sort of culture?
0: Mm. Well, I think if you look at psychology is also partly, you could say study of behavior. Movement is a behavior. So psychology also study movement and how we, how we move can give insights into our emotions and intentions, I guess. So I would think that maybe part of a coach and being a psychologist is that the psychologist is partly a coach and the coach is also partly a psychologist. If you understand what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That I don't think we should be have defined separations I think it's very beneficial for somebody who wants to be a sports psychologist to coach. And it's very beneficial for a coach to do, to probably do some studies in psychology or work within psychology or have a mentor who helps them. Mm. So I, in our course at the Norwegian school of sports science our second year students now, they um, go out and do, so we'll say we'll have 10 football coaches and we'd have 10 sports psychology students. And we had a local school, so every week for about four or five weeks, um, twenty kids will say would turn up. And we'd have some coaches would take we'd divide them into groups of six or seven, the kids, and one coach would take one group, another coach, and they would have some pre-prepared session they might have, but they would have a sports psychologist with them, a sports psychology student with them, who'd be just watching behavior and taking notes. Now beforehand, the coach would send something to the sports psychology student can you pay attention to my um, my body language with the kids? Uh, how I speak, how much I get involved in the session, do I step into all, you know, things like that. Mm. And then afterwards, so that would be the Tuesday. And then the Thursday, we would just randomly select one group and they would sit down in front of the whole class on the Thursday and they would in, the, the sports psychologist student would interview the coach and we have everything is filmed. So they would probably could refer to a film from the because we have cameras uh so they can say okay what's and we'll discuss what's this what were you doing here mm-hmm. what's your thoughts about this what do you say about how you're standing or you know all these things your body language yeah, yeah. what were you saying what exactly were you saying to the child here you know and this would be just be a discussion about okay and so how can we move on from here where do you think more i guess somewhere in motivational interviewing as well mm-hmm. and so that's how they were. So this is so the sports psychologist and the coach are working together and learning about each other.
1: I, I love that. And so. there's a real kind of intentionality there as well by yes. the coach sort of seeking out that feedback and, and kind of wanting to understand a little bit more about yeah,
0: it. Yeah, so it's things like, you know, some coach will say like, you know, I want to give more feedback. And a typical discussion would well, does maybe less feedback is better. Does more feedback mean good feedback? Hmm. You know, so... We discuss all these nuances uh, with, with the psychologist and, and then I would maybe ask questions after this, and the whole class would ask questions about the interview. So that's, I think the roles can be also, we can go back to coach education. Maybe this is something for coach education to work, to help, not so much to find the roles, help embed the role of the sports psychologist in coaching and help embed the coaching role in some sort of psychology as well, so that they learn from each other. So I, I think we need to make them they're – bo- they're both like different sides, probably of the same coin.
1: Mark, well, I was going to ask you for a, a, a takeaway, kind of a real sort of you know takeaway message for people, but I think that what you've just said there kind of fits perfectly, really. Oh, okay, um, <laughs> But uh, is there anything, though? You know, from the conversation that we've had, the things that we've been talking about—if there's something that you really wanted to leave listeners with—is um, is there something that you would uh, that you would say?
0: I think um, I th- one of the things that I've really learned in youth sport, particularly in football now, because it's, is that there is a tendency to create internal competition where we're teaching kids. To comp- in the same teams to compete with each other to keep their place in the academy or whatever the team and yet when they go up to senior sport they have to collaborate to compete so they're competing with each other to win games in the same team but really then in senior sport it's about collaborating with each other to win so even there i think there are issues so i think a really good starting point for coaching would be, how do we make each other better? And that simple thing can be, I have the ball here, you're behind, there's a defender in front of me, you're there, how do you make me better? Oh, you move over there, why is that? Oh, now I can get a pass, brilliant, now I pass to you. How can I make you better? By moving somewhere that might either distract a defender so you can run forward, or so I can get the ball back. You know things like this. That's even just on football. How do we make each other better? But then, how do we make each other better before training? How do we make each other better after training? How do we make each other better on, on gain this? So I've ran sessions that are basically. The, and I don't like themes. I think themes is it just <laughs> does my head in. Today's team, we're going to work with attacking, which means that there's no defenders. <laughs> you know, basically. So, but. I think you could build so much around how do we make each other better. Hmm. And uh, that's, that's something I've really worked with a lot of kids and it's because you're giving them ownership. Yeah. And by that, okay, I'm, I'm on the picture. I have to pay attention to the information here.
1: And it's such a simple concept, isn't it as well, but it can open up so much.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, Mark, thank you so much i think that's as, as good a place as any to sort of bring things to a close it's been a, a really really fascinating discussion so i just want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, to come on 80 percent mental i really appreciate it thank
0: thank you very much for inviting me um i hope uh, yeah hope this gets uh gets out there soon and maybe we get some feedback from people
1: absolutely so Mark, where can people get a hold of you if they want to uh, reach you
0: um i'm 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 on twitter so that's um actually i have to check what i have on twitter <laughs> right.
1: i'll sort it out i'll put it in the yeah. episode description so if you want to get a hold of mark you can you can do that through there so yeah mark just once again thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you
0: it's been wonderful thank you
1: Well, I hope that you out there in listener land enjoyed all this as well. Uh, Again, don't forget that you can listen to all of the episodes from three series of 80% Mental so far. There will be more to come uh, at 80%mental.com. Dot com? No. At (laughs) (laughs) 80%mental.com. That's a very different website. Um, (laughs) You can follow us. On Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80% Mental. Um, I hope you've enjoyed what you've listened to today and I will see you next time. Well, I won't see you though, will Because it's a podcast.